So we're in the summer series where we're talking about people who have encounters uh, with Jesus. So we're going to go to John chapter 11 and to the story of the raising of Lazarus. Somebody floored me uh, just before I came into the meeting and said, what do I think uh, Lazarus died of? Uh, which I said I'd never thought about, and he reckoned it was COVID. But anyway, so, so in, in John chapter 11 and verse 25, you have one of the most famous statements of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. And then uh, Jesus actually proves that, demonstrates that, by raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, this is a, a, a very long story in John's Gospel. We're actually going to pick it up uh, where Jesus arrives at the home of Lazarus and at the tomb of Lazarus uh, some four days after Lazarus had died. So I'm going to pick it up in terms of reading at verse 17 of John 11. So, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! 
And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, if I say to you, what do we do together on a Sunday morning? There may be a number of answers that would come in, like will we worship God together? Uh, but one of the things that we do on a Sunday morning, uh, it's part of what we do every Sunday morning, is to lay down a foundation of truth into our lives. Uh, sometimes you hear the expression Christian doctrine, and doctrine is one of those kind of in-Christian words, really. But Christian doctrine is really the truth about something which we learn from the Bible. So you can speak about the doctrine of prayer, and that would mean that we've been to the Bible and we've taken all the teaching that there is there in the Bible and we kind of looked at it and maybe systematized it so we can teach the truth about prayer. We can teach the Christian doctrine of prayer. Well, here we're arguably into really one of the supreme doctrines that we need to give attention to, and that is the doctrine that covers death and resurrection and life. And uh, it's interesting to see as we come to this story that Martha, who is the sister of Lazarus who had died, knew her doctrine. And you see that in verses 23 and 24. And so Jesus said to, to her, to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. Well, how did she know that? Uh, well, maybe she attended Gateway Church, or uh, maybe she read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, but essentially she would have known that because of certain teaching in the Old Testament, like uh, verses from Daniel and from Job. And so she had formed, as it were, this doctrine, this truth uh, in her understanding uh, that uh, there would come a day when the dead would rise. And we need to have a foundation of truth in our lives, uh, because truth is what gives us hope. You think of the circumstances that can threaten us. Even now, we still have the situation in Russia uh, and Ukraine, and we uh, have uh, uh, the, the fact that the Middle East was at war again just a few days ago, and we have the threats in China and Taiwan. We have all these things that kind of surround us, as well as personal circumstances of cost of living and so on. And so we need truth to actually be embedded in our life. And at times we can get ill, uh, at times we might uh, even know someone who's died or we face death ourselves. Well, what's the truth as we face these situations? And we need the truth embedded in us because truth gives us hope. So here was Mary, face, uh, Martha and Ma Mary facing a situation of death. Their brother had died and Martha was grieving, but she knew the doctrine. She knew the truth. And truth does need to be within us so that we can cope and also so that we can hope. Right, first of all then, what happens when we die? I'm putting that as a question because that's a, a question that I quite commonly hear and has quite often been asked uh, of me. What is it that happens when we die? And to be honest, sometimes there are some quite vague answers to that. Uh, supposing you were going on a visit to somewhere that you had never been to before there's a good chance that you'd want to know something about that place and that you'd get some information about it. Well, we often say things like, we are going to heaven forever. So it would, in fact, be pretty good to know something about that, especially as forever is a pretty long time. Uh, and so we need to know something about what is coming. 
And so there is part of the answer given in this particular story. It's not all the answer by any means, but it is part of the story, part of, part of the answer. And it really is crystallized in verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, I don't know if you read that verse, whether it immediately strikes you that in fact it's the contradiction that is what Jesus speaks there. I mean, do we die or don't we die? Did you pick it up? The one who believes in me will leave even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So, do you die or don't you die? And you've got this kind of contradiction in the verse. Well, everyone dies. We would say we, we know that, and in fact, uh, Jesus gives recognition to the fact that believers die. In verse 25 there, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. So, Jesus recognizes that believers will die. Now, I'm of a generation when, actually, my generation is dying, and uh, I'm only very conscious of that. Uh, my wife decided this year that she would write down at the back of a diary everybody that we knew that died during the year, and actually that list is getting quite extensive already. And uh, I'm very conscious of the fact that uh, five years ago, I had a sister four years younger than me that, that died. Uh, and so we're very conscious of death as the, the years go by. But it's something that a lot of people simply don't want to think about. John Calvin, and this is 500 or so years ago, great theologian, said this, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may be philosophical br briefly about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. People don't want to think about death. But if there's one thing that Christians must always be, that is realists. We're realistic. And we acknowledge the fact, even as Jesus acknowledged the fact, that we die, that believers die. And also that death levels everyone. There is no advantage for anybody in the face of death. The poor die, the rich die, the super rich die. I don't know if you've ever noticed how many really top-flight, well-known footballers die young. It seems to level everybody, doesn't it, eventually? The powerful die, prime ministers die, presidents die, dictators die. No one escapes, no one has any advantage here. It, we're all exactly equal. Everybody dies. Sometimes somebody says something like, there's been a decline in the death rate. Let me assure you, there is never a decline in the death rate. <laughs> Everybody dies. And Jesus acknowledges that believers die, but then he seems to contradict himself. So let me say it to you again in verse 25. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, but whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So do believers die or don't they die? So I just want to push at this a moment. We've got to push at this. What is Jesus saying here? What does it mean? Why does he say believers die, but then he says believers don't die? What's he actually getting at? We need to push at it. And surely what Jesus is teaching is that believers won't experience the totality 
of what we call death. So, what happens when people die? Well, there is, a, for believers, a, re, a leaving of this life and entering into a new dimension of life. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration that I have used before, and uh, if some of you have heard this, please forgive me, but as Paul says, there's uh, no problem in me, in me reminding you of these things. But my illustration is this. I want you to imagine that you live all your life in one house, and this is a house with many rooms, and that's where your entire life is. And so during the course of your life, what you do is, in fact, move from room to room. And sometimes you're in a very comfortable room and it's very nice, and another time you might move, move into a really grotty room. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's pretty unpleasant and pretty uncomfortable. Uh, mostly, the rooms are okay. But during the course of your whole life, you're in this house and you're moving from room to room, and that is your entire life. But you're aware that there is a back door to this house. And during the course of your life, and as you're moving around these rooms, you sometimes think to yourself, I wonder what's on the other side of that door. And it just crosses your mind from time to time. And then after many years, you find yourself suddenly being drawn towards that back door. And all of a sudden, you find you can do nothing about it. The door suddenly swings open, and you go through it. And for the first time ever, what you see is a blue sky and lakes and trees and green fields, and everything looks utterly wonderful. Now, that's exactly the foundation of truth that needs to be laid down in our lives, that one day the door will close on our present life, and we can call that death. But on the other side of that door, it's going to be a new dimension of life. And so Paul says, to die is gain. Or again, Paul says, to be with Christ is better by far. Everything will be enhanced when we step through that door. Now, secondly, let me say this about death, that we grieve and we hope. We grieve and we hope. Believers who die go through a door into a new and greater life. The problem comes for those who are left behind because for them there is real grief. Maybe you've lost somebody that's close to you and you've been through this experience of deep grief. And even with the strongest convictions that you might have that there is life after life, you will still grieve. And that is true for Martha in this story. She was grieving. Fascinating as, as it is, I discover as I look at Philippians that the Apostle Paul also knew what it was to grieve in the face of death. I say that's fascinating because of the way that Paul speaks about death as being gain. If you go to Philippians chapter 1 and to verse 21, Paul specifically says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul seems to be looking forward to eternity, looking forward to going through the door. In fact, he goes on to express how he wants to be with Christ. For him, it's all an expression of gain as far as he is concerned. But you go just a few verses further on, same book, but just the next chapter, and in chapter 2 of Philippians, he speaks about a friend of his called Epaphroditus. 
And in verse 27 of Philippians 2, Paul says, indeed, Epaphroditus was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So obviously his friend Epaphroditus, who'd come to him from Philippi, got seriously ill. He almost died. Paul says God had mercy on him, which can only mean that God raised him up and he didn't die. And Paul says, because he didn't die, I was spared sorrow upon sorrow. Here you are in chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul saying to die is gain. In chapter 2, he is saying, if my friend died, it would be sorrow upon sorrow. And so even the Apostle Paul, believing that death would be gain, also knew what it was to experience grief. If a friend died, then he would be full of grief. And uh, uh, death will always bring grief, but again, as the Apostle Paul says, it will bring grief, but also never without hope. And so 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1 and verse 4 Uh, sorry, chapter 4 and verse 13, uh, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So Paul acknowledges that people will grieve. He acknowledges that if you've got friends or family, those that you know and love, that you will grieve. But it's a different kind of grief because we who are believers have hope in the face of death. And so when we come back to the story of Lazarus, we see that there is plenty of grief. Martha is grieving, even though she knows the doctrine. Mary is grieving, his other sister. But also, Jesus in some way seems to grieve. So as you look at verses 33 to 35, uh, we, we read there that when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? That's Lazarus, he asked. Come and see, Lord. Jesus wept. So in the face of death, with all this grief around him, Jesus is also weeping. Now, there's a lot of discussion by Bible commentators as to exactly how we should translate and understand what in the... uh, New International Version is translated as Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. It's a word in the Greek which is an extremely strong word for emotion. Uh, And it's very difficult to bring out the full sense of this. And in a way, it seems that the word ought to be translated perhaps more strongly even than that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. There seems to be anger that is meant to be expressed through Uh, this word, and perhaps one of the better ways of putting it might be to say that Jesus was outraged. So what was it that Jesus was so moved about, so outraged about? Was it the grief of the people? Was it the fact that he was facing the reality that someone he knew uh, had, had got ill and had died? Was it the fact of death itself, that there should be Uh, in in the human state, something that was never intended to be, that people died. So Jesus is there, and amidst all the grief and all the emotion, Jesus is weeping, and he is deeply moved, and he is outraged in the face of death. 
Now, the, the reality is that in grief, death can also make us angry. Sometimes people get angry because they know of somebody who's died and they say, why so young? Why did it happen when he or she was so young? There's anger there. Sometimes people can get angry with themselves because they feel that the person that has died is someone that they could have done more for and they feel angry with themselves. Death produces grief and it produces anger and you see the same with Jesus. He's weeping, he's he's in fact empathetic with the uh, sisters of Lazarus. They weep, he weeps, but he's outraged in the face of death and there's an anger in his spirit because of the existence of death. But for the Christian, whenever there is grief in the face of death, there is also hope. And that hope is, above all, invested in Jesus himself. Martha and Mary had hope. They knew the doctrine that in the last day their brother would rise. The Apostle Paul had hope in the face of death. He could grieve, but in the face of death, he believed that death would be gained for the believer. But it is Jesus who says, I am the resurrection and the life. And that statement is louder than all the cries of grief that have ever been made. And Jesus proves that he's the resurrection and the life as he advances upon the grave of Lazarus like a great champion. And in whatever outrage of spirit Jesus might have felt in the face of death, he stands before a closed tomb, demands that it is opened. And as the resurrection and the life He raises Lazarus from the dead there and then. And so in the face of death and in the face of grief and in the sadness of loss, this is our hope that Jesus is the I am of resurrection and life. Now, right in the middle of the the worst bout of COVID in terms of lockdown, um, again, somebody died that... uh, Uh, younger than me. In fact, it was the wife of somebody I'd worked with for years in Brighton, and she was still relatively young. And uh, she became seriously ill in Brighton, and in fact was taken up to a London hospital. And for a number of weeks, she was uh, in intensive care in this uh, top London hospital. Her husband couldn't visit her during all that time because of the lockdown restrictions. So you can imagine what a grim situation it was. And then one morning, my friend, he got a, a phone call and he said, you must come up to, to London right now, your wife is declining. And uh, so he rushed up to hospital and rushed in there and into the ward and she had already gone, she'd already died. And a few days later, uh, we watched the funeral service that took place uh, for his wife. And it would have been a big funeral if it had not been for lockdown. She was well known, she was an elder's wife, and uh, a lot of people would have gathered uh, for her funeral. But in the, in the cemetery, there were 10 people, because that's all you were allowed at that time. And they were all spaced out from one another. So there was the grave, there was the coffin, and just 10 people around, all spaced out from one another. It would have been, in some ways, a great funeral, but you looked at that and thought, this is so, so sad, so sad. Now, my friends, I want to say this to you as Christian believers. 
that we are not actually meant to expect a great funeral. What we're looking forward to is a great resurrection. And that's the hope. Jesus is the resurrection and the life for all believers. We grieve, but we have hope. And also I'd like you to see in this story that the miracle that Jesus did as a sign. In John's Gospel, when you encounter a miracle of Jesus, it's always a sign. And a sign points to something. And with Jesus, the sign that he does with a miracle always points to something greater. So if you think about water into wine, which is referred to as the first sign that Jesus did in John's Gospel, uh, he changes uh, water into wine, and uh, the, the miracle is complete in itself, and everybody was having a good time and saying, hey, you know, this is great, we've got the best wine now, we thought we'd had the best, now we've got the best wine, and there's lashings of it, I mean, we're having a really good time here, and this, uh, this was the, the miracle that took place, and it was complete in itself, but it was also pointing to something. And beyond the good time that they might have been having at that time, what was it pointing to? What it was pointing to is abundance in God's kingdom. That Jesus can turn water into wine. It's a sign of something greater. It's a sign of great abundance that's going to come with the fullness of his kingdom. So the, the sign may be complete, or the miracle may be complete in itself, but it's always pointing to something greater. Now this is especially true of the raising of Lazarus. This must be the greatest sign that Jesus gave, and it is referred to as a sign later on in the chapter. What's it pointing to? What is the greater thing that this miracle is pointing to? And in a way, I can illustrate it personally. The fact is that uh, Sue and I, we have been to two tombs of Lazarus. Now, the first tomb was in Bethany, and this is where the story takes place in the Bible. And uh, you can go there today, and whether or not it's a genuine tomb, it may well be, because the tradition obviously would have been very famous right back into the earliest times, but you can visit what is meant to be, and may well be, the, the tomb of Lazarus. And uh, you, you, you can see that there was a space at the entrance where a stone would have been rolled over, and you go in, and then you go down a number of steps into a kind of vault. And uh, you can imagine Lazarus being placed in there. So uh, Sue and I went down and we, we had a look at it. And then I said to Sue, uh, just hang on a minute, come out after me and I'll take a picture, picture of you coming out of the tomb. Uh, so she hang on. And then after a moment or so, I cried out, Sue, come out. Uh, and she came out and uh, I took a photograph of her coming out of the tomb of Lazarus. But we've also been to another tomb of Lazarus. And you'll find this tomb in Cyprus uh, because it is believed that uh, Lazarus actually became Bishop of Cyprus. And uh, he died there and uh, he was buried there. So what does this tell us? Well, what it tells us is that in fact, although Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, that he had to die again one day. And both those tombs can be visited still today. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you say to Jesus, prove it, he does and raises Lazarus. And it's all highly visible. The, the Pharisees get into a panic. What's happening here? Everybody is following him. The whole world is going after him, say some of the Pharisees. 
But in fact, what Jesus did in raising Lazarus, though a miracle completed itself, is still pointing to something greater. And it's pointing to the fact that our hope, brothers and sisters, is not in some kind of resuscitation back to this life, but it is resurrection to eternal life in which we will never die again. I wonder if you've uh, ever thought to yourself how Lazarus reacted to this miracle. Uh, I, I, I think it's not hard to have a kind of picture in your mind of, of what took place. Uh, so there's this conversation that takes place between Jesus and Martha and Mary. Uh, he, he asked to go to the tomb. Uh, this great emotion uh, being expressed. He, he says, roll back the stone. And they say, well, you can't roll it back because the body is already decomposing. Uh, but Jesus insists that that takes place. Uh, he calls out, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out, still bound in the grave clothes. I can, you can imagine the sisters, Martha and Mary. I mean, talk about hopping and jumping and skipping for joy. I mean, they must have been delirious with joy to see that Jesus had raised their brother Lazarus. But what about Lazarus? I sometimes wonder if he said, Blow, why did you bring me back? I mean, what kind of time was he having there? We're not told what uh, uh, Lazarus' experience was at that time. And uh, uh, it, it's, it's interesting to, to, to note that, uh, uh, that there is also a reference by the Apostle Paul to being caught up into the third heaven or into paradise. You'll find that in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And he, he speaks of an out-of-body experience. And he says, I don't know whether it was uh, in the body or out of the body, but I was kind of caught up and uh, I went into paradise and I went into the third heaven and I, I heard things. But he said, I'm not permitted to tell. And my friends, you know, when we think about what's going to be on the other side of that door, which is not going to be simply a resuscitation back to this life, but a resurrection to a life that will never end. There are things that we will hear and things that we will see that can't even be described by people who've seen and heard them, like Lazarus and the Apostle Paul. Now let me, let me tell you just one other thing about death. Death is always untidy. I think as the years go by, this name may not mean much to many people now, but uh, 18 years ago, Terry Virgo, uh, father figure of New Frontiers, he rang me up one Saturday morning, I'll never forget this, and he said to me, Simon Pettit is dead. That's what he said to me straight away, Simon Pettit is dead. And Simon Pettit had uh, gone from a church in Sussex to lead the church um, that we worked with in central Cape Town. He'd done a, a great work there in reviving, renewing that church, he began to oversee other churches that were being planted. His ministry was being asked for across uh, southern Africa. He was beginning to exercise a wide and apostolic ministry. And at the age of 50, on a ministry trip, he went to New Zealand, where a new church was being established. And he gave a seminar uh, at a, a retreat center where the church was gathered. And after the uh, seminar, he went out and kicked a ball around with uh, some of the guys who were there at the church weekend at the retreat. And he dropped dead. Bang, like that. That was it. He was gone. Age 50. I mean, you can imagine the shock of that. Body in New Zealand, dead at the age of 50. I mean, talk about an untidy death. Or I think about people I've known who have suddenly died in their sleep. It's been unexpected. Everybody's shocked and taken unawares. It's untidy. 
Or I think of people going into great old age and increasingly frail, and that's untidy. And I think of people dying of cancer and all the medical interventions, and that's untidy. And I think of COVID, where people were suddenly caught out, and suddenly this person had gone, and that was untidy. It's always untidy. Death is always untidy. And I've thought a lot about this. And I've sometimes wondered if God has allowed it to be like that because we need to understand something of the wonder and the glory that is to come. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul says, Our light and momentary troubles that might include all the untidiness of death as well, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And it's that greater resurrection, that greater glory that the raising of Lazarus points to. So let's bring all this together. It's important that there's a foundation of truth laid in our lives. Why? Because death is real. Even believers die. But here's the truth. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead. And then he proved it again by rising himself. He didn't simply say, I am the resurrection and the life, as it were, attributing himself some great title that he couldn't prove. But he went to death on a cross, dying for a purpose of dealing with the death of all sinners. And he took upon himself at Calvary uh, the guilt and the pain, the shame, the condemnation and the death of sinners. So that in the death of Christ, there is a death of death, because whatever we go through in this life, when we come to the moment of death, somehow it isn't really death, it's just going through that door into a new dimension of life. And Paul is so strong in speaking about this and reminding us that this truth needs to be laid down strongly in our lives, so that in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. As the hymn says, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. We're all going to die. We're going to go the way of all flesh. Yes, we'll die, but we won't die. We'll go through a door into a new dimension of life. That's our hope for unspeakable glory and joy. D.L. Moody, great evangelist uh, in the 1800s, a forerunner really to the famous Billy Graham, once said this, an unbeliever is living in his day and he has nothing but a long, dark, eternal night to look forward to. A Christian is living in his night. He has a grand morning that he is looking forward to. The day is ahead. The glory is ahead. The best of life is ahead, not behind. So have you encountered this Jesus? He is the one who is the resurrection and the life. Are you still thinking that you're not good enough to have an encounter with him? Or even worse, that you're, you're so good enough that you don't need to? No, there is only one who is the resurrection and the life. That is Jesus. Have you encountered him? Have you believed on him for eternal life? Father, we 
thank you for this great statement of Jesus. We thank you that he could say, I am the resurrection and the life, raising a man from the dead, rising from the dead himself, giving hope and confidence to all of us who are believers. Father, we know we face the last great enemy, which is death, and yet in a way it's not death. It is simply through a door an entrance into a fuller, grander, more glorious expression of life. Father, we pray that we might encounter Jesus afresh here this morning. As we worship you together, as we break bread together, may we remember that we are feeding on the one who is resurrection and who is life. We give you praise in his name. Amen.